Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are going to work through 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 3 all the way to 16. It is a, a fairly large chunk here that we are going to take and chew on and meditate on and by the, the grace of God profit from. So would you join me in a word of prayer as we come now to the Lord asking for his grace on us as we study his word. Father, this is indeed your word. And by your word, your servants are warned by it. We gain wisdom through it. We are instructed. We are instructed in the path in which we, should, we ought to walk. And so, Father, help us to not only understand, but that we would receive it. That we would grow in it, grow in our understanding of it, but grow in our appreciation of the wisdom that we find here and of the grace that is found here, O Lord. For it is indeed gracious that you instruct us. It is indeed gracious that you speak to us and have written to us. That we may know you and know how we ought to live. And so we praise you and we pray for your mercy on us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some months ago, after a service, it was during a particularly cold winter uh, last year, and not just a normal time, it had reached the point in time, we had reached the winter where we had uh, reports that we were at the coldest days of the year. And while we were, it was frigid, it was below freezing, well below freezing in the single digits. While we were there, we, it was a Sunday, and we gathered here for church, nice and warm inside. And after the service, I went into the lobby, and I was quickly told, there's someone here who would like to see you who needs some assistance. And so after I had spent some time greeting and walk, uh, saying goodbye to people, as, as you all left, I sat down with this woman, and we talked, and I began to, she began to unpack her story for me. She began to unpack where, you know, her, her present need. She was at that point homeless, had nowhere to go, no place to stay, didn't know what she was going to do that night. And so this church, we have been extremely generous with those in need as, as opportunities arise. And so my family, we, we got together, we took her to lunch, and we spent that afternoon, we went to one place and then to a second place where we were finally able to get her settled for a few days. And during that time, while she was up there, I started making some calls to rescue missions, other place where I knew they would be able to house her more permanently. Time after time, no openings. It was the coldest time of the year. The closest place we had that we could find where there was an opening was in Lancaster, some about an hour and a half away. But we had found an opening, and they were willing to take her. And so I called her to let her know the good news. We have found you a place. We will transfer you there. We'll get you settled there. And, uh, you know, you'll have my number. We can still work things out. And her response was, no, I think I'm comfortable where I am. I'd, I'd like to stay here. Well, that's, that's not an option, you know, we, we can't, you know, we as a church couldn't afford to keep her where she was presently on, in an ongoing way when she wanted to stay. We did everything we could to kind of convince her, 
Eventually, she asked if one of us on the day in which she would have to be, she would have to leave that place, if one of us would be able to come and, and take her to a place in Norristown where she knew she could at least get some food and perhaps some lodging. And so we did. How do we help those who come for assistance? How do you help those in your life who need help? Another another opportunity arose years even before this. There was a man living nearby. We had helped him as a church year after year, not, not every month, but often enough we had helped him be able to meet his rent requirements. He was a man who worked, at least said he did. We, we were trying to help him, come alongside him, do what we can for him. And it seemed that no matter what we did for him, there was always more that needed to be done. Eventually, I talked with his landlord. And in talking with his landlord, the landlord told me, you know, I wish you guys would stop helping him out because every time I get close to being able to get rid of him, he's a terrible tenant. He's tearing things apart. And every time I get a chance to be able to get rid of him, he... You guys help him just enough to keep him in. How do you help people? There is a way that we can help someone that ultimately leads to their harm, right? There is a way that we can serve someone that ultimately leads, that undermines them as a person, that undermines their dignity, that undermines their worth, that undermines the goals that not only they, we may have for them as a person to be independent, but undermines their ability to follow after Christ. And one such occasion when we were requested to help and after talking and investigating and, and, and looking through the example, we as a church said no. The person responded, how can you say no? I thought you were a Christian. You're supposed to help everyone with every need. That guilt, if you care about people, you feel that guilt. I took that person to John chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 6, we find the account of Christ. We know well, the early part of the chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in a miraculous way. We are told that he has compassion on the crowd because they have come, they have left uh, their jobs, they have left their homes, they have traveled some distance to come hear him speak and thousands have gathered before him. And Jesus, after teaching them all day long, let me just stress that, all day long, okay? Not for uh, 45, 50 minutes on a Sunday morning, all day long. And I would remind, last week I was told I ended a, a minute before 12 o'clock, so I'm banking that minute for today, all right? So, um, but Jesus was teaching them all day long, and at the end of the day, he had compassion on them because they had, they had nowhere to go. They, it was going to be, for many of them, it, it, it would mean it was too far to go home to, so quickly, so let's feed them now. And the disciples, how can we possibly do this? And Jesus, through the means of these five loaves and fish, he, he feeds them in a miraculous way. It's incredible. Well, you can understand everyone stays that night where they're at. They're camping out, sleeping under the stars. Jesus goes up in a mountain top to pray. His disciples, they go across the lake nearby. They go across the lake to another town. And then Jesus crosses over 
in the middle of the night, passes them along the way, and there's another account of that. But then the day comes, and everyone, we are told in John chapter 6, everyone, they wake up, and they go looking for Christ. They know the disciples traveled across, but Jesus, he stayed, he went to the mountains, so and they went looking for him. They couldn't find him anywhere nearby, so they traveled around the lake to find him. And when they got to the other side, they're hoping for another meal. Now, let's, let's follow the logic. Jesus had compassion on them before. Ought he not to have compassion on them? Now they're even farther from home. Now they have even less. How much greater is their need? And Jesus refuses to help them. He tells them, you have come not, not because you have wanted me, the bread of life, but really because you had your bellies filled. How do we know? How, how can we wisely help those in need? We are called to help those in need, are we not? There is a generosity that we are called to have one to another. This is the question that, these are the questions that, that ought to come up into our minds as we come to this text. To whom are we obligated to help as a church? To whom must me especially support? Is it everyone with a need? Or is it a smaller group? If it's everyone with a need, we don't have the resources for that. Just as you parents are not required to feed every child in the world, but your own preeminently, how are we to use the resources, the limited resources that God has given us, to leverage those resources in ways that honor him, that serve him and his purposes for us? Do we even need to provide assistance? I mean, isn't that just a distraction from what God has given us? Is that even something we need to do? That is where our text leads us to consider this morning. And Paul tells us in verse 3, begins us in verse 3, calling this church in Ephesus to a certain action that is instructive for us today. He says, honor widows who are really widows. Honor widows who are really widows. This word honor here doesn't just mean, it doesn't just carry this idea of respect them. Here it is, it is a, it carries the idea of you're going to give them some assistance, material assistance with their lives. This has the, this is a command, it is an imperative given to a local church that for their widows in their midst, within that local church, they are to be providing regularly for. And you may ask, why focus on widows? Aren't there any other needs in the church? In the time of Paul and Timothy, first century Israel, there was no social security, there were no programs, there was very little help given to people. And so of adults, there was a special group of people who were most vulnerable, most needy. Because of war, because of disease, because of the conditions of work at that time, it was not uncommon for men to die fairly young. In fact, by some estimates, it is believed that 40% of women at this time were widows. And you can imagine that the needs of widows who are, by and large, unable to completely support themselves, you can imagine that the needs of widows would 
outpace a community's ability to support them. In the time of Paul, in the time of Timothy, where in the place of Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring, widows were especially helpless. Not, not helpless at all, but they were especially vulnerable. They were especially weak. Especially if they didn't have a family that was taking care of them. And so Paul gives this command to focus on widows. Honor widows who are really, truly widows. And you can see the space that he devotes to them here. From verses 3 to 16, Paul is describing what is to go into the thinking of a church as it contemplates how it is to fulfill this command. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. We are given a handful of verses about elders, a handful of verses about deacons, and we are given twice that and more regarding elder, regarding widows. Clearly, this is something that is important. Not for, just for Timothy and for the church there at Ephesus, but it's important for us. How do we love, how do we show compassion as God has shown compassion? Indeed, when we look through the Old Testament, we find over and over and over again this description that God is a defender of the widows and orphans. That God himself pleads their cause. God himself takes up the cause of the weak and the vulnerable and the needy and he takes it on himself. We see that in the New Testament. James describes the responsibility of Christians that it is particularly our responsibility as Christians to, to show generosity to those who are weak. True religion, pure religion, and undefiled is that which gives assistance to those who are most needy, to the widows. We see this in the life of Jesus, do we not? He cared for widows. He cared for those around him. And he criticized the religious leaders of his day who neglected the care of their own parents for some technical religious reasons, to use those religious reasons as an escape from their obligations to to honor their parents. More than that, you see in the example of Christ, as he is dying on the cross, one of the things that he finds it necessary to say with the few words that he can utter is to ensure that his mother is cared for. He entrusts her care over to one of his apostles, one of his disciples, the apostle John. Clearly, the situation of widows was close to the heart of God. Caring for the vulnerable and the needy, it's not the mission of the church. That is, God does not give the church in the world so that we might do humanitarian aid. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel. It is to share with others that which no one else has. That To declare that which no other organization can declare. The church is to be a picture and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of the ways that we do that is through our works. Let your light so shine before others that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. If we are to do what God calls us to do, it's going to involve a level of generosity and care and compassion. But this leads us to the question, honor widows. That would be easy, honor widows. But who are really widows, right? 
Honor widows who are really widows. That's an unusual way to describe this. What is this? Is, were there some women who were faking to be widows, but they really weren't? Is that the situation? Some, some translations will translate this, honor widows who are truly in need. But that doesn't quite capture it. The best translation is honor widows who are really widows, who are widows indeed. He has in mind a group of people, a, a subset, a category of widows that are genuinely worthy of support. And because the word honor is present tense, that is, it is something that is ongoing. It's not just something you do once. Here are those within the church who are so worthy of your support and so needy of it that you provide ongoing material assistance. This isn't a one-time help. We are to do good to all men, but especially of those of the household of faith. Here is a particular group, even within the local church, that we are to devote our resources to. So Paul gives guidance on who is worthy to receive these resources. Honor widows who are really widows, who are widows indeed, truly widows. And then he gives some qualities, all right? He's going to give qualities, and then he's going to give some qualifications. What are the qualities of the kinds of individuals, in this case, widows, who are worthy of it? Or we might say qualities that distinguish the worthy candidates from those who are unworthy. The first thing that we see in we can see this in verse 5. Is that these widows who are really widow, truly widows, really widows, these are women who are examples of godly faith. They are worthy of the support, the ongoing assistance of the church because they are examples of godly faith. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She trusts in God. Do not, don't just skip over those words as unnecessary. Here is a quality of this person that is worthy of the ongoing help of a church. That this person, these are people who have learned to depend upon God in their need. Think of Ruth in the Old Testament. Who loses her husband. She, her sister-in-law, loses her husband. Her mother-in-law loses her husband. And while her sister-in-law goes back to her own people, Ruth learns to trust in God. Leans hard on Him. Think of Anna in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, we are given this portrait of a woman who is... She, would, she had been married as a young woman. She had been married for only seven years until her, and, when, and then her husband passed away. And she never remarried in that time, but she had learned as an 84-year-old woman at the time of Christ's birth, she was known for being in the, the temple complex, praying and fasting almost every day. She is a woman who had learned to trust in God The chief quality of those whom we as a church are to support are those who are marked out by their faith in Christ. And this trust in God is is pictured here in their prayers. These are people who in their prayer, they are depending on the Lord in everything. And we see in verse 6, those who are unworthy of the ongoing care of the church. Church may help anyone. But here are those who are not worthy of the ongoing assistance 
We are told, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. These things command that they may be blameless. She lives in pleasure. The word translated lives in pleasure has a a very broad meaning. It could mean that she is engaged in some kind of sexual sin, but that doesn't, that, that could be part of what it's saying, but it's more broad than that. It carries the idea that this is a woman who is always wanting more. This is a person who is never satisfied with what they're given. You help and they, they're always wanting a little bit extra. It carries the idea of someone who, who maybe could live upon what is given, but really would like, you know, the expanded cable package. We really would be able to have some extra so that they can do some nice things. Here is someone who, who hasn't learned to trust in the Lord, but rather is, is leaning on the church to kind of expand what they can do with their lives. They're living for pleasure, living in pleasure, rather than living within their means, trusting God. This person is dead while she lives. That is, it could mean that this is someone who has never learned to trust God in the first place and is therefore not a believer. Or it may mean simply indicative that they, this is a person who is, though a believer, they are not acting that way. Either way, this is someone who is not really a widow. In these things, Timothy is commanded to teach that the church may be blameless in the way it helps and that those who need assistance may be blameless in how they live their lives. But he goes on from merely giving some qualities about the people that are helped to qualifiers. What are some things that are expected that are necessary for those to receive ongoing assistance. Not, not a one-time help, but I'm talking ongoing help from a church, long-term help. We see, first of all, is that this person is one who is left alone. Verse 5 says that, now she who is really a widow and left alone. We see this in verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is, let Let those grandchildren or children, let them first learn to show piety, godliness at home and to repay their parents for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God before God. It is is the Christian's duty to provide for their home. So this is someone who is left alone. The first qualifier for someone is to, to be able to receive ongoing assistance from the church is that they have no other means, no other help. They are desperate. They have been abandoned by their family, perhaps because they came to Christ, or perhaps they just don't have family that is willing to support them in any way. This is someone who is truly left alone. But the encouragement here is that if you have a, a parent who is who's needing some assistance, it is the responsibility of a Christian believer to care for that family member. We see this in verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, that is, you have a parent or a grandparent, we might even extend this to other parts of the family. If any believing man or woman has widows within their family, let them relieve them. 
And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. It appears that part of the situation was that you had people within the church who had widows within their family. And rather than supporting them themselves, they were bringing the needs of their their family members to the church and asking the church to support them ongoing. Well, the church cares for widows. Hey, I've got a widow in my family. Why don't you just put her on your widow's list and we'll, we'll go on our merry way. And Paul says, no, that's not how this is going to work. The church is not meant to take your place as a child. Your place is to care for those within your own family. And he adds weight here in verse 8, where he says, if we do not care for our own parents, if we, are, if we claim to be a Christian and we do not care for those within our own family, it is a signal that we are worse than an unbeliever. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What he means by that is that this is something that is care for your own family. That's something that's expected of everyone, everywhere. So if we as Christians fail to do that for those within our own family, we we are undermining our very proclamation of what we believe. We are dead in the faith. So true widows are those who are left alone. The church isn't meant to take the place of family. The church isn't meant to take the place of family. More than that, we as a church have this responsibility, uh, we as Christians have this responsibility, this God-given duty to care for those within our own family. Now, one exception, this is a, a general rule, but I think, I think there is one exception to this that we need to weigh individually. And I know some of you have come from homes where there was abuse. And what it looks like for you to care for a parent is going to be different in that situation than in another situation. If you have a family yourself and a parent or a grandparent who is abusive, expects you now to, to care for them, to bring you into their home, I would encourage you, especially if you have children, to weigh that decision carefully. We are called to care for the weak and the vulnerable, but you must remember, brother and sister in Christ, your chief responsibility is to your own family first, your own children. And so you need to be careful about who you invite. But outside of that, this is a, this is a, a command that we ought to take seriously. And even in that situation, we have responsibilities to our family. Second, not only are we to care for those who have no one else to care for them, Paul gives us, in verse 9, another restriction, another qualification. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, be added to the list. That is, there is a, the church has a list of those widows that are uh, eligible to receive assistance, ongoing assistance from the church. That they are going to be added to this list. And he says, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into this number. And that seems rather arbitrary, does it not? In the time of Paul, the age of 60 was, was actually considered uh, beyond, it was beyond the lifespan of most people. 
below the age of 60, he considers, he, he encourages them to, to be married. He considers their ability to work for themselves, to prove themselves faithful. But here he gives this restriction, not under the age of 60 years old. I think in our, in our time, with better nutrition, better medicine, better care, people are living longer, the age might be considered older. But here is the picture of those who are beyond the age, beyond that time in their life when they are able to physically care for themselves, physically help themselves, physically able to supply their own needs. That's kind of his byline right there. That's kind of his standard. They have reached the point where they are no longer able to help themselves, no longer able to supply their own wants. Third, we must prioritize those who are faithful. So he says, verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the... Here we got several characteristics of what it looks like to be faithful. And not unless she has been the wife of one man. This is the same description that is given about elders. They are expected to be one women kind of men. That is, they have the, the character quality of being faithful to their spouses. Here is not, Paul is not saying, look, this is not a woman who is, who is to have lost her first husband, remarried a second time, lost her second husband, but because she married that second time that she's no longer qualifying for this assistance. That's not what he's saying. He is saying she is to be, just as an elder was to be a, a one woman kind of man, she is to have been a one man kind of woman. She is to have been faithful. She is to have been faithful, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Verse 10, more than this, she is to have a good reputation, well reported for good works. And what is her reputation to consist of? If she has brought up children, that is, she has been faithful in her duties as a mother. If she has lodged strangers, that is, she has shown hospitality. She has humbly served the church in that verse 10, going on, if she has washed the saints of the feet. That's a general description of those who have served God's people. She is more than this. She has shown generosity to others. If she has relieved the afflicted. And if she has diligently followed every good work. Here is someone who is, that's that summary statement. Here is someone who has, not perfectly, mind you. Here is someone who, over the course of their lives, you have watched them work and be faithful to the Lord. Here is someone who is to have a reputation for godliness amongst God's people. And fourth, Paul would go on then to tell us, we as a church must then refuse those who are unproven. He goes in verse 11. He says in verse 11, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Here are wives, those who are unworthy, is that they are younger, is that they have not yet proven themselves to be dependent, to be faithful. And we see this, this lack of faithfulness and lack of faith in their lives. In verse 11, we read that they are 
They have this wanton desire. But refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton. Or they, they, have, they have now strong desires, passions that are leading them to disobey Christ. Leading them to abandon Christ they desire to marry. The picture is, is not merely that it's sinful to marry. In fact, some, some interpreters look at this and they say, con, with considering verse 11 to 12, 12 goes on, having condemnation because they have classed off their first faith. Some of your translations will read, they have, uh, they have abandoned their first pledge, their first vow. Some of your translations will read that. And the idea that they are reading into the the text there is that perhaps these widows made a vow in which they would not marry, but now they're abandoning Christ so that they can get married. But that, to me, reads what happens far later, a a vow of chastity. That, That is something historically that happens far after this time, it seems to me they're reading that back into the text. There is nothing in the text that seems to indicate that. The very word translated faith in this passage could be translated vow or pledge in some other passages. But usually there are indicators within the context that that's the case. Indeed, it seems to me that Paul is not telling them they shouldn't get married that, or they're wrong for getting married. Why? Look at verse 13 and 14. I'm sorry, verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. 